welcoming you to Be In The Know, where we muse with the great and the good afforded pitch side views of the best of the Premier League action. Today, we're joined by Oliver Holt, the Chief Sports Writer at the Daily Mail, Chris Waugh, the Newcastle United Correspondent at The Athletic, and Mark Ogden, the Senior Football Writer at ESPN. Later, we're going to look ahead to the Premier League's absolute classic encounter. It's Manchester United versus Liverpool at Old Trafford with the pressure really piling on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. But first, we're going to sit and have a really honest and open chat about the takeover of Newcastle United. Chris War in Newcastle is going to give the perspective of the Newcastle United fans who feel so frustrated. They can't just be excited about the takeover without hearing the many conflicts around human rights abuses, around the takeover, around the future of their manager. We're going to start by speaking to Ollie Holt first. Ollie, looking back at what has been an historic fortnight for Newcastle United, overall, how do you look back at it? Well, I'm I'm pleased for Newcastle fans that um, that they've got rid of Mike Ashley, and I um, I I think that I understand the the, the emotions of that. Um, I think that you know I absolutely share the opinions of most Newcastle fans on Ashley. I think it was a absolutely joyless regime that was lacking uh, in any ambition, appeared really to be lacking in any love or affection or empathy for the club and you know to me even to me uh, at a uh, a distance it felt like a slow torture for Newcastle fans I totally understand the, the level of frustration and emotion that built up around that and so from that point of view I'm really um I'm pleased for them and obviously I understand the excitement that comes that comes with being bought by um, a nation. Um, I know that there is an argument that isn't a nation, but we all know that it is uh, by, by a nation that, you know, has untold riches and resources and, and the promise that that brings of a transformation in the club's fortunes. And it does bring that. And I think that um, in time we will see Newcastle rise and rise. I'm sure some mistakes will be made, but on the pitch, it's hard not to think that they will, within the next decade, that they will be challenging for um, the biggest titles because that's what eventually that's what that kind of money should bring. Shortly, we're going to talk to Chris and and really get the viewpoint of the fans. And you'll be glad to know that Mark and Ollie Holt will both be raising issues that I think Newcastle United fans will absolutely be agree on and maybe be surprised to hear. I do just want to point one thing out, though. During this podcast, I know one of the big conflicts around this takeover is the fact that the Public Investment Fund, the now majority shareholder of Newcastle United, is chaired by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's been accused of ordering the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a journalist critical of the Saudi government. Both the United Nations report and a US intelligence report believe that the state of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Prince Mohammed bin Salman were responsible for and ordered the death of 
Khashoggi. So when we're hearing about that, and Ollie will talk about it shortly, you'll know we're referring to this case. It's important to know the Saudi Arabian government has always denied the charges. I think clearly there is a, you know, from my own point of view, and I think uh, some in our profession feel this particularly keenly because of it, it is, I think, very hard to accept that a regime um, that murders journalists um, in, you know, a pretty grisly way um, and that stands for a lot of things that we... uh, stands against a lot of things that we hold dear uh, in this country uh, in terms of attitudes towards uh, homosexuality, uh, attitudes towards uh, LGBTQ rights, um, attitudes towards free speech. Um, I find it hard to accept that uh, a country like Saudi Arabia should be owning one of our football clubs and actually one of our best love football clubs. And I know that it maybe it sounds disingenuous, but I really do. You know, I, I've, I've always loved going to Newcastle um, and I think it's a fantastic city, one of the most beautiful parts of the country. And I, you know, I, I know there's a real risk of this sounding patronising. I, I just think it's a real shame that being bought by Saudi Arabia, I, I hear people saying that the club will never be the same again in a good way. And that's true. It, it won't. And it, it, will, be, it will be more uh, powerful on the pitch. But it will never be the same off the pitch either. And I think there are elements of that that's a shame. Chris, you've talked about the past 10 days you wrote on, at the time that have evoked a mixture of emotions in Newcastle fans. Not every supporter feels the same. Most are delighted to see the back of it. Ashley excited for the future. Others feel deep conflict given the Saudi involvement. While a minority won't be back, while the regime is in place, you live, you work in a city where, uh, as one Uber driver told me on uh, the weekend, if you live here, you are a Newcastle United fan. Um, they came from Czech Republic 25 years ago, not a football fan, but they say there's literally no choice How much conflict is there? How much excitement? Well, I think, as you mentioned, everyone is different and it has been a very sort of strange two weeks. In one sense, people may argue, well, you've had 18 months to try and get your head around you, but it's been difficult to know if this was ever going to happen. And then when it does happen, it's still different to the sort of concept of of maybe it taking place. And it was rapid the way that it went from... Wednesday morning we sort of found out of the athletic and then by we thought it was actually going to be that day but it was it was the next evening that the deal was confirmed and you had Newcastle fans outside St James's Park and the celebrations were a mixture of a lot of things as Ollie mentioned there was there was so much frustration at the Mike Ashley era I think that because this takeover saga dragged on so long as well that a lot of fans maybe had almost lost hope that the Magashi was going to go and couldn't see a way that he was going to go. And he'd, he'd run the club even the last 18 months. It had gone to a different level of sort of not, inve- not investing. It was very much, I'm not going to spend any money at all because I don't think I should be owner anymore. I don't want to be owner anymore. And so there's been a lot of celebration of that. There's been a minority of fans who I've spoken to who will not be returning as long as uh, the Saudi Arabian PIF are involved. And I entirely understand why but then a lot of other supporters either 
don't really seem to 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 believe that that the other situation that, that to do with human rights and everything else with the abhorrent uh, sort of ways where you can look at Saudi Arabia, they do not want that to be involved with football and they will just support their club. Others are conflicted. I, as a journalist, feel conflicted covering the club. I don't know how I feel about it yet. I think it's going to take me a long while to process exactly how I feel about everything that's going on. But uh, we have to reflect what is the large majority of Newcastle fans, at least from all the polls that we see. We did one on The Athletic last week and more than 90% of fans said that they supported the takeover, where about 75% of them said they still had moral concerns. So I think it's a very conflicted situation. It's difficult. It's, it's asking supporters to think beyond just what the football club is to, to consider issues that maybe hadn't thought of before. And so I think the issue that there's been over the last week is that a lot of Newcastle fans have almost felt besieged and they've, they've felt not listened to for a long while in terms of the issues of Mike Ashley and I'm not trying to equate them with the issues of Saudi Arabia they're completely different levels but equally Newcastle fans are basic some some Newcastle fans anyway feel we haven't been listened to for so long and now you're almost lecturing us about how we should think and feel about our club and so it's a very very complex situation. Mark there at St James's Park all of those um, as you return back to that that stadium you see all the money that a Tottenham have spent on a stadium to bring that kind, those kind of acoustics. It was magical to hear that atmosphere there again because we've been there for those matches where it's, well, quite shortly after that opening goal, we got it again. It's just a, a des- desperately echoey, hollow place, but great for the fans, but obviously many questions to answer. It is. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to cover Newcastle over the years and it is a great stadium to go to. It's a great city. There's a real kind of, we know it's at the top of a hill and there's a real kind of sense of occasion. I think one thing that has been overlooked in this, especially by a lot of us who don't live in Newcastle or don't work in Newcastle or don't, you know, because there are a lot, is how important this club is to the city. Because, you know, the industry's gone, the, the shipbuilding, the mining, it's, it, it, that's, that's gone years ago. And the one thing that people in Newcastle have got is a matter of pride that the source of their you know, that week-to-week focus is the football team. And for the last 15, 16 years, it's been, as Ollie said, just trampled upon and just run into the ground. So when they were criticised, when the Newcastle fans were criticised for reacting to the say they taken as they were, I think a lot of that was mis- misread. I think it was mainly, a lot of it was that they got rid of Mike Ashley. Mike Ashley's regime was just, the hated regime, was one of the most unpopular owners in the game. So I think we have to give Newcastle fans an element of, you know, understanding that that was, a large part of their celebrations. The other part of it, the welcoming the Saudis, well, yeah, I mean, as a journalist, you obviously have issues with what it means and, you know, how, how has it been allowed to happen? But ultimately, I do feel some sympathy for the Premier League in this because the Premier League, for me, can't block the takeover of, a, of Saudi Arabia to Newcastle on the basis that the UK government regards Saudi Arabia as one of its biggest allies, one of its biggest trading partners. So if the, if the UK government is happy to do business with Saudi Arabia, it's very difficult for the Premier League then to say, well, we're not doing that. So people on all sides are conflicted in this, but ultimately, I don't think the football world has the power to stop it. And the other argument is that the Saudi Arabians are using this to, you know, sports wash their image. And I see that. But also, you could argue that in the last two weeks, there's been more focus on Saudi Arabia and, and their regime and the bad things that's happened with that regime than perhaps would have been had they not bought Newcastle. So buying a football club does bring a lot of scrutiny as well as the element of sports washing. So down the road, we'll see how it plays out. But I think if you ask people at Man City and at PSG, it hasn't been a, a kind of a comfortable free ride in terms of lack of scrutiny. There's been a lot of scrutiny. So maybe having a football club would be a bit of an uncomfortable exercise for the Saudis as well as 
an element of distracting attention from other places. Ollie, 18 of the clubs have voted for a temporary ban on any clubs uh, taking on commercial arrangements that involve pre-existing business relationships. David Heitner going with it first. This will prevent Newcastle United signing maybe a stadium uh, naming rights deal with sponsors, one of their close contacts. This is a big move. Jurgen Klopp saying that basically the Premier League had worked so hard to stop the Super League, but this is the equivalent of bringing in a Super League team and eradicating all that good work. Do you think this has gone some way to address it? Does it go far enough? Will it get past the lawyers to be a permanent solution? I'm not sure that it will. I mean, I think it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting move. I look, I kind of, you know, I think what Chris, I agree in in some ways with what Chris said, and I think it's a brave thing that Chris said for a journalist. And I think we don't often say it enough. Is that I'm not sure quite what to feel yet. And I think it, it about the the takeover. I mean, I think I know what I feel, but there are so many nuances, unfortunately, involved. So, you know. Mark is right as well that instinctively I'm really totally opposed to to uh, Saudi Arabia taking over Newcastle for, because of everything they stand for, because of the Jamal Khashoggi murder, because of I say everything I said before. I'm to, I'm totally against it, but. You know, I do understand there is an argument and I understand the Newcastle United fans argument, particularly that in some ways the horse has bolted um, already. You know, um, we have a situation where Manchester City are effectively state owned um, by a Middle Eastern country. Um, and I so as far as your question about the, the commercial deals, again, I kind of feel I know there are investigations going on into Manchester City's uh into Manchester City's deals at the moment but I kind of feel that it's it's a little bit late to be to be getting uh it feels a little bit like victimization um to be getting into Newcastle's deals or the deals they might do when it's been effectively been a free-for-all up until now um if you're gonna if you're gonna let them through um which they have done and as Mark says maybe they didn't really have any choice in that. If you're going to let them through, it then seems a bit weird to start imposing conditions on them that you didn't impose on other on other clubs. And I think that that is exactly the kind of thing that is going to start, you know, is going to increase the feeling in Newcastle that they're being victimised. And say, look, I'm saying that within the context uh, of someone who is absolutely opposed to the Saudis uh, taking over at Newcastle and, and who thinks it's a sad thing that's happened. But I think now that it has happened, it's a bit weird to start trying to apply um, uh, conditions to it. It's as if they're trying to solve their conscience a little bit. At some point, by the way, I'd like to see the Premier League actually say something. Um, somebody pointed out, you know, what, what, we're leaving it to ex-footballers and journalists to comment on this takeover. The Premier League haven't put their heads above the parapet. I mean, I don't know if they're scared of something, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a strange situation where they've just gone to ground. 
Well, that your answer sums up measured journalism and the conflict. And I think conflict is going to be a word, watchword around this Newcastle United takeover for a while. Chris, my question was going to be to you, do you feel a bit picked on? Uh, but Ollie's already got there for me. Well, I think I think a lot of Newcastle fans do feel picked on. I think that, that mentioning the Premier League is an interesting point because I know that Mark said he, he feels sympathy for them. And I understand where he's coming from in terms of they were, they were in a very difficult position in terms of whether to pass it or not. But ultimately, the Premier League have passed this deal. Newcastle United fans, although with every poll that we've seen, the majority or vast majority seem to have wanted this takeover, Newcastle United fans didn't get a say in what happened here. This was one billionaire in Magashi selling to significantly wealthier billionaires in the Saudi Arabian PIF. Uh, the Rubin brothers, who are also billionaires of their own right, Namada Stavely, who is also a millionaire. And they feel that, that they've been, as I said before, they haven't been listened to for so long. And then all of a sudden, Newcastle takeover happens. Other clubs have been able to, to rise up over the course of the last 15, 20 years. But now all of a sudden it happens to Newcastle. Other clubs feel threatened. And suddenly they try to put the brakes onto this. We had the Super League not so long ago, and yet those clubs are now talking about. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was almost hilarious and quite pathetic that really we had this idea of the the brand of the Premier League, which I agree, I understand exactly where they're coming from in terms of Saudi Arabia coming in. How can that affect the brand of the Premier League? But six of those clubs were talking about joining a Super League, and what is going to be more damaging to the brand of the Premier League than basically making it? uncompetitive anymore in terms of qualification for European Champions, uh, for the European Champions League and things like that. So Newcastle fans, a lot of them do feel like they are now being lectured to, have not been listened to for so long. I would encourage all Newcastle fans to try and be open-minded about this, to try and read up on this and to try and educate yourself and learn more. And it, it just feels difficult because everything now to do with Newcastle United is unfortunately going to be through this prism. Of, of Saudi Arabia and that is that is a concern for me as someone who feels passionately about the club and the region someone who's covered them for so long that there is always now going to be an asterisk attached to the club regardless of how you feel about it regardless of, of whether you're a Newcastle fan who doesn't want to really engage with all of the, the negative sides of this and believe that football and politics are separate unfortunately externally at least this is now going to be a question every single interview I do every single time the club is mentioned if they are successful it's going to be there's a but afterwards Mark, being in, in Manchester, you know that that's always sort of overshadowed Manchester City. Um, the Khashoggi murder accentuates this a little deeper, doesn't it? Of course it does. And it's um, it's difficult. I was thinking this, that, that around the world, that, you know, there's so many clubs that have got owners that which, you know, in ordinary times, would be kind of questionable owners. But we can't, we can't choose our owners. You, you know, there's, there's, there's regimes that people are uncomfortable with. You know, there's a lot of Chinese money in football now, again. Chinese issues there, which need addressing. I think, unfortunately, because football is such a a mass popular sport that unsavoury owners at times will 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 try to get involved, and that's where we're at right now. And I, like Ollie says, the the ship has sailed, the horse has built. If you've ever met before, you want the the days of football clubs being owned by local businessmen who may have the club's best interests at heart, not necessarily always do, have gone. You know, football clubs are now massive corporations, you know, the, the the Hollywood kind of style celebrity magnets for these people. So it's I don't think it's gonna change. I, th I think that's the that's the era that we're in now. And I think as Chris says, the clubs that have these owners will always be accused of buying success. But listen, I don't know many Man City fans who who are concerned about that. I, I really don't. And I, I know City fans that were at the that followed the club when they were in the, the old third division and going to games at Lincoln and Macclesfield as much as they enjoyed those days, they wouldn't swap them for what they have now. They're not conflicted by it. 
a lot of them, you know, when we had the Super League situation, the, the one group of fans that were very quiet in terms of protesting against the owners, the Man City fans, because they, they don't want to com- complain about their owners. So, you know, generally, I think the, the general public has an opinion on this sort of thing, but if, if you ask a supporter, a kind of a partisan fan, they're, they're not bothered if the owners are, as long as the owners are putting money in. And that's the thing. It's kind of selfish, really, isn't it? That you, Newcastle fans will say it doesn't matter who the owners are. It did when Mike Ashley was the owner. It might not matter now, but it does. So football fans will always be selfish and put their own interests first. Ollie, time to hear from Richard Masters, the overriding view, I think, now. Absolutely. Um, look, I think I think that um, it's difficult. I think the issue, there are so many issues here. And I think, I think, as, as Mark said, we're all saying the ship has sailed in terms of ownership. I, I, I think, um, I think it's difficult to know what we want really as journalists. And I think I, I'm, I'm not even saying that the, I'm not, in some ways, I don't think that the, I think the Premier League were unable to, to block uh, what was happening with the Saudis in some ways because that ship has sailed um, and Man City and Abu Dhabi are, are involved. I think maybe it would be nice, I think, if we could find some common ground, say, with Newcastle fans. And Chris was alluding to to this, where we just say, OK, we can accept that this is not necessarily um, a good thing, a great thing. Let's not glorify these. Let's not glorify these people. Let's remember um, what these people stand for, what they've done. Um, and so it, 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 I must admit, I, I don't blame the fans at all for what they, for their happiness about it. But it does, I kind of find it a little bit sad and rather dispiriting when I see pictures, uh, images of Newcastle fans in uh, wearing tea towels on their heads um, and waving wads of 50, 50 pound notes. I mean, Rory Smith, I think, wrote something in the New York Times about the fetishization of money uh, in English football. And I think he's absolutely right. Um, you know, I, when did we get when did we get to a point where money was money was all that mattered? I mean, I I do feel that broadcasters and journalists up to a point have a responsibility um, to try and um, negate the sports washing aspect of that. And it pains me when I see people enthusiastically um, uh, cooperating with sports washing in that way. I think journalists personally should be better than that. I, I, I've seen a lot of stuff recently about journalists as fans and... Again, I saw some journalists taking deliveries of broadcast journalists taking deliveries of cans um, to celebrate the Newcastle takeover. To me, uh, and I know that some of this sounds holier than thou, and it's it's a, it's become a hobby horse. Journalists celebrating the arrival of the Saudis when the Saudis kill journalists makes my stomach turn. To be honest. I, I I accept that there are reasons why Newcastle fans are happy about it, 
I don't think journalists, I think journalists should have a little bit more respect. I think that's a big question. When do we discuss it? I mean, being sports, uh, currently, um, I've not poked the bear because a lot of the Newcastle fans seem to think it was us and it wasn't, you know, holding, it would be us, us kind of one-upmanship back at back at Saudi Arabia. It's been a difficult line. So for this week, we're um, going quietly. Um, do, do, Chris, do, do fans appreciate it's not them and it's not about them? The whole, the delaying, the piracy, the question marks on human rights, do they understand it's not about them? I've heard that point said quite a lot of times and I understand exactly where you come from, but I think it's difficult to tell a Newcastle fan that it's not about them because it's their club which is being talked about in connection with this. They're the ones who are being talked about and, to, and every time they hear their club mentioned now, this is this is what's talked about and this is what's mentioned. And you can say that that is the problem of the owners who've come in. They're the ones who have brought this with them. But I also... and, and I, I'm thinking about the balance of how we go going forward in terms of how we cover it personally in Athletic, but elsewhere and there is a risk, I think, that you can you will just force Newcastle fans completely away from it if you if you just try and do it too much and you don't. There is a footballing element to this story, as 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 much as that the human rights and everything else really needs to be covered, and we have to continuously talk about that. If you forget the football element and all you talk about are the other sides of this, if you don't try and at least understand how Newcastle fans are feeling, if you don't try and go and speak to them about it, then I think that if it's just constantly all that that is I think that that will disengage some fans I know that we've already started to turn some people away because of that I've seen people on social media who don't want anything to do with it anymore because of that and then that risks just completely alienating them from it and rather than giving rather than actually giving them information and trying to educate them it just becomes their feel they're being lectured to they're not being listened to and therefore it's unlikely to change anything in that sense so I think there is a very difficult balancing act I don't know what the answer is I don't know how we get to that stage yet and I think it's going to take time to reach that stage but I do think that that some Newcastle fans do feel it is about them even if everyone else may argue it isn't and understand exactly why they argue that the, the problem is it's difficult to tell Newcastle fans it's not about them when their club's being talked about and they're the ones who are being told how can you support this regime how can you support this when it's their club they've always supported and they've always wanted that connection to now I know there's been all the stuff and I understand again about when some fans have said we've got our club back over the course of the last two weeks that feels incongruous given what's happened that feels difficult to take but I think a lot of it is because in the first 24 hours of this new ownership probably you could argue wisely from PIF's point of view they put up Amanda Staveley, Mir Dagaducey and Jamie Rubin rather than them themselves and so Amanda Staveley was seen as sort of the, the palatable face of, of this uh, administration and she spoke to Newcastle fans she spoke in a way that Mike Ashley had never spoken to them for three and a half year, 13 and a half years so it's 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 a very difficult balance, and I keep saying it, it's very, very complex, but I do think that, that Newcastle, some Newcastle fans at least do feel that, that they are involved in this, and as much as we as journalists may say it isn't about you, they do feel it's about them. Um, I'm going to stay with you just because we need to move on to the rest of rest of the league and the Champions League. So the final one, um, Steve Bruce, um, briefed by people connected to the consortium that he would go well before the match. That didn't quite go to plan, did it? No, I think that it was uh, fairly uh, amateurish in some ways. First week for, for for the consortium in that sense, I think that you sh you show that saw the naivety maybe of them coming in and, and sort of running a football club that there has been um, at least a large section of the Newcastle fans. I think it was ninety seven percent, and the latest poll that we did believe Steve Bruce should go. 
both him and the, and the sports direct signs which are around St James's Park was sort of a reminder of, of the past on football uh, on Sunday when the game and I suppose also the way Newcastle played as well as a reminder of the past the the, the mistake I felt that the consortium made last week was not just that they kept Steve Bruce in charge when so many Newcastle fans wanted to go it's the fact that that wasn't communicated until 12.45 on Friday just before his press conference they delayed even announcing the press conference for so long because they hadn't been able to make the decision it's just who they actually identify which has proven to be very very difficult Well you said in your uh, match day coverage of it I think uh, Luke Edwards wrote um, earlier this week they might just spend 50-60 million taking a cautious approach I think you said that improvements could be made for every player on the pitch well, yeah, I mean, again, what, what may have been overlooked is that Newcastle are they're in a relegation battle. They, they are one of the worst teams in the Premier League by some distance. They haven't won a game yet. And the, the run of fixtures between now and January is pretty, pretty bad. You, I don't see them getting out of the bottom three by then. And, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to sign world stars in January. And even if they were able to sign world stars, they're not going to go to Newcastle right now because the big players aren't going to go to Newcastle and say, yeah, I'll not play in the Champions League for three, maybe four years. So, you know, Newcastle are going to find what maybe Man City found in the early days that, you get that sometimes you get the wrong kind of player early on when people see that an opportunity agents as well and players to, to make a lot of money off the back of clubs with lots of money, desperate clubs. And I think Newcastle are will be desperate in January because, you know, I look at that team and I, I think, you know, Callum Wilson is, is a good Premier League player. At, you know, Sam Maximan, again, could possibly do a job for a club in the top 10. But beyond that, Newcastle haven't got any players that would get anywhere near to a top 16. So they're going to have to rebuild and, at the moment, they're a team that's heading for relegation. And that is the unpalatable truth for Saudi Arabia, that they may, have, they may be the richest club in the championship next year because there's no magic wand on this. They've got they've got a month in January to strengthen the squad, maybe four or five players. Can they get the right characters? Can they get the right quality? Can they get people that want to be there? Can they get who they want? I, I just don't see, see it being an easy ride in January. I think they're going to have a struggle to get the players they want. And even five players might not make the difference that they need. A lot of work to be done then at St James's Park. We're going to look to another, um, well, uh, a giant that may be struggling, Ollie Holt, uh, Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer, your assessment. Um, the board absolutely giving him their backing. Um, how long has he really got, do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, the board may be giving him their backing now and actually the I think the board have been, to its credit, and I don't often say that with the Manchester United board there at the moment, have been very supportive to Solskjaer and they have allowed him, uh, rightly, I think, to rebuild the club, rebuild the ethos of the club, I think, after uh, Mourinho left and Van Gaal. And um, I think they are, in a, they are in a better position now. But it's, I think the board are being supportive, but... As Mark was saying about Newcastle's run, United have got a pretty difficult run of fixtures coming up, starting um, with Liverpool. And um, I'm not sure that he's going to survive that run of fixtures because I think there was an expectation. United under Solskjaer have, have been gradually improving in terms of league position. I don't think that's going to happen this season. And I think once it becomes evident that that's not going to happen. And in and in that sense that United have, have started to go backwards actually or get further away from the from the title. I think that's that's going to be very difficult for United fans to accept. I think even Solskjaer loyalists amongst United fans, and Mark would know more about this than me, but are starting to waver in their loyalty to 
to Solskjaer. I was at the the King Power, um, and the second half of that match felt it did feel like the beginning of the end. I must admit because it the, it felt as though that di- they were directionless, um, leaderless. It it really felt like a club that was a team that was drifting, and I'm nervous about uh, identifying. Pogba always is the problem there because I don't think that's true and I don't think that's fair. I think he's a very, very good player. Um, but sometimes it can seem as if he, because he's such a good player, when he has a bad game, it can be seen as a symptom of, of the problems at that club that they're, that they're underachieving. And he had, a, he had a really bad game against Leicester. Um, and I think it was worse for the fact that he played so well in the Nations League. Um, but again, he seemed to be symptomatic of a side that, you know, Leicester were were hungrier. They were Pogba was losing challenges all the time. He was playing in as one of the holding players in front of the back four, and again, uh, an emblem there of the fact that United have not solved this problem of their defensive their defensive weakness. They're great going forward, um, and I'm sorry, I know this is another big subject, but I think when they when they it was a weak move to buy Ronaldo, they bought Ronaldo to stop him going to Man City, not because they needed him. They didn't need Ronaldo. They needed a central. Uh, they needed a central midfield player, defensive midfield player, and it was a weak move by a weak board to buy Ronaldo. And I think it's going to. I think it's going to end up costing Solskjaer his job. Mark defeat. At Old Trafford against Liverpool would mean one point from 12. That can't go on, can it? Well, what would be the reaction if that were to happen at Old Trafford? Well, the one thing about the owners, like Ollie says, I, I think they make a lot of weak decisions. One of the weakest was giving Solskjaer a three-year contract in the summer when they just ended a season with no trophy again. You know, Pep Guardiola and Thomas Tuchel were both given two-year contract extensions last year and they were made trophy. So why did Oli and Solskjaer deserve a, a longer contract than two? absolute winners so there's a lack of a lack of ruthlessness and a lack of that winning mentality at United it's, it's all a bit too nice I think you know you look at the characters involved at the club that, that will make the decision Ed Woodward the Glazers I don't see any kind of edge there I don't see any kind of the Chelsea ruthlessness or the Man City ruthlessness that that drive to be winners so judging on what happened with Moyes and Van Gaal and, and, and Mourinho you know people say that David Moyes went too soon he went after 10 months but he could have gone at Christmas yeah being around the club, you knew that, that the players had lost faith in David Moyes. The same thing happened with Van Gaal six months before he was sacked. Same thing happened with Mourinho six, seven months before he was sacked. That it was clear from a certain point that the manager was, you know, dead in the water. But the, the board persisted and persisted. They wouldn't make a tough decision. And I, and I think and I worry that it, the same will happen again with Solskjaer. This time, you know, Atalanta at home on Wednesday night, big, big game. They don't win that. The Champions League hopes are, you know, going up in smoke. Liverpool at home. You know, Mourinho was sacked after losing at Anfield a couple of years ago from a, following a terrible performance. But the United are they're, they're wedded to Solskjaer right now because they believe he, as Oli said, he's kind of rebooted the culture of the club and turned them into something that they were maybe twenty years ago. Well, well, they're not really because they're not winning anything. You know, let's be honest. And and Man United's problem right now is that the two the two busy focusing on what happened in the past. We want to get back to this. We want to get back to that. Everybody else has moved on. Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City have moved on. They're looking to the future. I'm, I'm, I'm sick of hearing when United talking about they're getting back to the old ways of doing things. Well, the old ways are no good to anybody. And you look at the team, 
it looks the most undercoached team in the Premier League. They've, they've got some great players there, but they don't. A lot of the time, you think, how how many times can this team be caught on the counter attack? How many times can this team fail to break down a stubborn opponent on Old Trafford? You know, in, in, in Solskjaer's credit, that they get the defeat at Leicester was the first defeat in the end of the twenty nine game and beat run away from home. Twenty nine games away from home in the Premier League without defeat is an extraordinary record. But in the same time, they've lost eight games at Old Trafford in the league. So it shows you that while the, the, the away record is almost papering over the cracks of being unable to beat teams at home. So they're making progress, but it's snail's pace progress. And they have to accelerate because they're going to be constantly in this situation whereby they're just making steps to catch up, to, to catch up, to catch up, rather than being ahead. So they've got to stop looking to the past. They've got to cut this, this Ferguson obsession and move forward and, and stop talking about cultural reboots and this, that and the other. They've got to be decisive and ruthless and find a manager that can get this group of players where it should be, which is much higher than it is. Ollie, um, I'll just give context. Mark Ogden is a lucky man in Madrid and that um, beeping of horns is just so typical of Spain and we all want to be there. Um, Ollie, um, a lot of talk about maybe some talk about the coaching staff behind behind Ollie, could you bring in someone to make them more effective? Do you think, I mean, the, the name Zidane, so many people discount, but we've seen him in Champions League finals. He doesn't fluke them and he didn't always have the strongest squad. I'm not I'm not sure that it's necessarily about Solskjaer's coaching staff, the issue. I, I, I think, I think what Mark, what Mark, I, I tend to agree with what Mark said. I think I, I do think there's a feeling increasingly at Old Trafford, not amongst the hierarchy maybe, um, because they don't like making tough decisions, but that Solskjaer has taken them as far as they can go uh, under him. And I think, um, you know, Mark Mark is right about that. I think that, it, that I've always felt that they're making progress, but they just don't, seem to be able to take that final step. What Mark said about always playing catch-up, I think he's right. They never, they are, they do feel like they're making progress, but then you look at the progress that the other teams make around them. You look at some of the performances suddenly that Liverpool are putting in now, um, you know, that Man City are, uh, are putting in, the way that Chelsea accelerated under Thomas Tuchel. You don't see that kind of improvement um, at Old Trafford um, and I just I've always been a fan of Solskjaer and I think he's done I think he was what United needed after Mourinho um, and I think he's restored a lot of the values and a lot of the spirit to that club but I do think he's probably he's not the guy to take them the final step Chris Wall, would you like to see Zidane managing Manchester United? I, th- I think that Zidane's an interesting one because he had this uh, Real Madrid, and this is for someone just looking from the outside. It seemed that he had that sort of relationship with the players, the rapport. I, I think communication coming across him maybe maybe become an issue, and he obviously yes, he will have that sort of gravitas that, that, that Zinedine Zidane brings. But do, do I see him being quite on the on the level of Klopp and Guardiola and Tuchel? I'm not not sure they're doing. That's harsh given given the, the record that he has in the Champions League, but I'm not sure that it, he necessarily is that sort of quote-unquote super coach at other clubs. Do I think he's going to really improve all those players? He may get them working in a system as he did at Real Madrid, but I don't know if he's going to get them really improving. And maybe you could argue with the players Man United have, that's exactly actually what they do need. I was It was interesting when Newcastle played at Old Trafford a few weeks ago 
it was uh, obviously Ronaldo's first game, and he scored twice, and there was and there was it, that was huge because he he was back. But actually, watching the game was interesting because the effect that he had on other players. And I, and I don't mean to sound clever after the fact, but I turned and commented some other time that other players didn't necessarily seem as comfortable because he was there was one there was one moment actually in the game where Sancho went to make a run inside and Ronaldo basically ran in his way and told him to go the other way. And so he's changing the way that Man United play as well. And he's such the focal point of it. And he brings goals to the team, but does that necessarily benefit the way that Man United play? I don't see them often enough to be able to comment on that beyond that, but it was a sort of interesting point where I think that although Ronaldo maybe gives them that edge that they need to really start being ruthless winners, has he had the positive impact in terms of on the, the team dynamic? I'm not so sure that he has. Well, we will await developments this week. It's definitely something going to get interesting. I'm We're going to go into the break very quickly. Um, I'm going to ask you, first of all, though, for your copy casualty, something you've seen this week, this season, that you haven't been able to fit into your copy or that just really struck your imagination. I'll go to you first, Oggy. Yeah, I was at Newcastle on, uh, on Sunday and uh, obviously the game was halted for, for over 20 minutes because of a, a medical emergency in the stands. And, you know, thankfully the, the fan is... Has recovered. I was recovering, and he's, you know, Steve Bruce made the point that being where he was potentially saved his life in the sense that there were, you know, paramedics and a defibrillator on hand. But what one kind of strange moment while that was happening, while the game was in abeyance, was that the press box at St James is right behind the dugouts, and within five or ten minutes, Michael Oliver, the the Premier League referee, came down from his seat in the stand, uh, clearly to try and help you know, with the fourth official, the officialing team, if they needed any help as, a, as an extra pair of hands. But what really struck me about it was that Michael Oliver was there, not as a Newcastle fan, but he was there. He was there wearing a Newcastle shirt, which for me, as as a you know a Premier League referee, we all know they have their allegiances. But I think sometimes you can maybe keep it a little bit hidden. Don't turn up at a game wearing a club shirt because you know if Newcastle become a force and Michael Oliver's refereeing games that involve the big six that could you know have any game that could impact you know impact on Newcastle's fate. It, it does. It's not a good look because you know. I'm not one of these who will take a picture of him and send it on Twitter, but people may have taken a picture of Michael Oliver, put it around, here he is wearing a Newcastle shirt. I just don't think it's a wise move for a referee to to show his colours at a game. Yeah, remarkable stuff. He'll really be grateful for you telling him that. Ollie? So, I, Carrie, mine, mine's going to be a, um, a really boring one. And I, I saw your point about, you know, we've, we've had enough of, what we heard in lockdown from players. And mine's almost that boring, actually, but I I, I didn't realise it was this season. So mine was the old one about my um, my match report from the 1999 um, Champions League final when I was one of those, one of the many people who wrote about what a uh, what a Horlicks um, Alex Ferguson had made of his team selection and how um, United's defeat was all on him. Uh, and um, obviously, for the second edition, um, that was somewhat uh, that was somewhat changed. But I, I do remember the funny thing, and again, this has been a matter of public record for a time that Ferguson telling a few of us, um, making sure that we knew that he had seen our first editions, um, so he knew exactly what we'd written. Um, but yeah, that was a that was one of those things where it was an amazing uh, event to be at but one of my main recollections of it is the pure unadulterated panic of that final um of that final few minutes 
Um, yeah, I, I'm very happy for you to take us back to that. And we're also jealous that we weren't there. I think I was working on stack, putting in tapes on Channel 5 News on that night and squealed live as they were presenting the news and got into lots of trouble with the winning goal. Uh, Chris? Uh, mine's also from the Newcastle game on Sunday afterwards, actually. And it's sort of a contrast of, of two things. First of all, Steve Bruce, obviously, beleaguered, given the situation that he's in does uh, quite a long couple of TV interviews by the side of the pitch. But then before he goes down the tunnel, uh, there's one, there's a lone child who's waiting for an autograph. And to be fair on Steve Bruce, even given everything that's going on, he stopped and he did, he did sign the autograph. He gave the kid a little ruffle of the hair and he was very, very nice and kind to the kid, even while fans up behind were sort of heckling him. There was one fan who during his interview was heckling him. So he, he, he sort of maintained his dignity at that point. But also on the pitch behind, Newcastle players were warming down. And it's interesting if you watch Newcastle players warm down after a game when they haven't been involved because Jamal Lewis, who's a left-back who isn't playing at the moment, used to be a childhood uh, cross-country runner. There's a chance where he was probably possibly going to go and become a professional athlete. And when the players do the sort of runs and up and down the pitch... Jamal Lewis has to have his own separate programme and he's about he's usually about two lengths of the pitch ahead of everyone else because he's just so much faster and so much fitter than the rest of the team that he's miles ahead of everyone else. It's just bizarre watching elite athletes, but then someone who is an endurance athlete of his own accord and is ahead of him. So that was going on the pitch at the same time. So obviously Newcastle fans or fans of other clubs don't get to see that because that's after the game as we're waiting for soon press conferences to happen. And that is why I love Copy Casualty because we've been transported from athletics to one of the greatest finals and uh, yeah referees in in football colors uh magnificent thank you for joining us 